Christmas joy versus the Kirchensteuer. Kirchensteuer is a German word for church tax. Noel and I spent the years 1971 to 1974 studying in Munich, Germany, and one of the controversies that I got caught up in in a very minor way was the controversy over the church tax in Germany. There are two state churches in Germany, the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church, and each is supported by a church tax. Everyone who is baptized as a Lutheran or a Catholic, and that's almost everybody because the free churches are very small, pays automatically out of their income a tax which the government collects for the churches unless they are underage, disabled, or retired. In 1970, the amount of that money that each of these people paid was 8% of their income tax. In addition to this, they collect free will offerings as well. But the free will offerings in Bavaria, the southern state of Germany in which we resided in 1970, amounted to about 60 cents per person per year. So most of the expenses for the churches in Germany, the two large churches, are covered by the church tax. Now, the leaders in the Lutheran church with which I was studying at the time are very much aware of the problems with this system, but they believe that there are more problems created by a free will system than by their own. Here's a quote from an official publication from 1970 that explains the position. But when the church is financed through free will gifts, the danger is much greater that the proverb will come true, the one who gives the pay has the say. The church would be in danger, as for example in the USA, of doing and saying what would please the wealthy, and that would limit the freedom of the church and weaken its ability to reprove and correct the state and society, end quote. Now that's a good warning to us people in the United States, I think, because it is true that in every volunteer organization, the leadership is constantly tempted to compromise principle in order to kowtow to the wealthy contributors, isn't it? Whether it's a church or a college or any other voluntary organization. But having accepted the warning as well taken, I think we must also point out that it is probably not true, and I hope my sermon makes that probable this morning, that the dangers on the side of free will giving versus conscription or taxation, the dangers are just as great on the other side. And here's the one I want to point out. One of the great dangers of the system in Germany is that the church can go right on functioning when the membership is spiritually dead and gone. There is no correlation in the German churches between the presence of the Spirit and the presence of the Deutschmark. There is no correlation between spiritual vitality and material solvency. Noel and I worshipped in a church right across the street from our apartment for about four months 
German Lutheran Church, which had a membership of 10,000 people. That is, in the district in which this was the church, 10,000 baptized Lutherans resided. And the staff of that church was responsible to them. All of those people, except for children, the disabled, and the retired, paid the church tax. And therefore, the beautiful building was preserved. The staff was paid. The free organ recitals were given. The sermons were preached. The people were buried and married. But you know who came on Sunday morning to this 10,000-member church? Sixty older women, a half a dozen older men, and no young people whatsoever for four months that we attended. They called a new staff member while I was there, a new vicar, to add to the staff to take care of the many needs of the people who were in the hospitals and who were dying and getting married but never came. The deacon, or as they called him, the diacon or bishop, came to give the ordination sermon for this young vicar. And I'll never forget what he said. He stood up and immediately he won my heart because he was a very serious and concerned person. He said, in the New Testament, Jesus said, leave the ninety and nine and go find the one. He's worth it. He said, what I have to say to you, young man, is where are the ninety nine? Where are the ninety nine? My commission to you is leave the one. And go find the 99. So I don't want to throw stones at the German church as if their heart's not broken. I want to pray for the German church. I have friends there whose hearts are broken because of the situation. But they're making a mistake. I'm convinced they're making a mistake with the church tax. And I came into that controversy and was forced back onto the New Testament to find an answer to this question. What approach should leadership in the church take to getting the people to give support to the ministry of the church? That's the key question. And as I looked for an answer, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 provided the most full and amazing answer. You might want to turn to these chapters because we're going to look at them in some detail. These two chapters are absolutely packed with an unbelievable variety of motivations for the saints at Corinth to give to the ministry in Jerusalem. Now, here's the background. Some years earlier, before Paul wrote this letter, he had written 1 Corinthians. At the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, he wrote to the people and said this. This is chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning the contribution for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, he's directing all these churches, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that contributions need not be made when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. There is a great need in Jerusalem. There's a ministry going on there. A famine probably had struck and created food and hunger crises. 
There had been probably persecution from that very strong Jewish community that had not yet been converted, and there was great need. Paul was traveling through all these churches, collecting money to take with him when he goes back to Jerusalem for their need. So here he is now, having left Ephesus, moves up through Troas across the Aegean Sea, passes through Macedonia, where the Philippian and the Thessalonian churches are, and before he heads south to Corinth, he sends 2 Corinthians ahead of him by the hand of Titus. And he spends two chapters in this letter to help them get a big contribution ready for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, we can't look at everything in these two chapters, so what I want to do is two things. I want to walk with you verse by verse through two of its most important sections, 8, 1 to 9, and 9, 6 to 15, and then at the end, We'll try to sum it all up and organize it and see how it all fits together in a very brief way. So, let's take a walk through. And if you have your Bibles, please walk through with me watching Paul's argument. I want very much for the force of Paul's motivations here to hit home to us to see how it applies to our need here at the end of the year. Verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. Paul begins with an example of another church which had been very generous. Macedonian churches, probably Philippi, the Berean church, Thessalonica. But the main point of verse 1 is the generosity that I experienced for this collection back there in those churches was a demonstration of God's Grace. Paul never praises any virtue in man without ultimately giving credit to the grace of God. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. Now, the way God's grace has produced This generosity in the Macedonian churches is not by making them rich, but by making them rich in joy, not in money, but in joy. This is the beginning of why the church tax did not seem to square with what I found in the New Testament. The motive for giving to every ministry is joy, not the Kirchensteuer. Joy inspired by the grace of God. And when there is joy like that, not even poverty can stop the giving. Remember the widow's might. Verse 3 and 4. And they gave according to their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When Joy is overflowing because of the grace of God and the needs of Christian ministry are presented. Two things happen. Two things are affected. One, the amount that we give is affected. And two, the eagerness with which we give. Notice what the Macedonians did. They gave beyond what they were able. They looked at their budgets and were carried away with joy to give more than they could afford. And Paul is just tickled about that and is not the least upset. 
because he loves those saints in Jerusalem. The second thing, they did it with an unbelievable eagerness. They begged for the privilege of giving to the collection. Joy makes beggars out of Christians. Beggars to give. Please let me give. Paul, verse 5. And they did this not as we hoped, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. It is possible, isn't it, to give money to God and to people and keep ourselves back. Money, which should be an expression of personal commitment, can very often be a substitute for personal commitment. And Paul does not want that kind of money. Of first importance, he says, is give yourselves to God and to God's people. And then the gifts of money will be acceptable to the Lord. And notice how the verse ends. By the will of God. That is, the Macedonians had been enabled to make that personal commitment by God's will. It does not come naturally. Verse 1 said it was a sign of grace in their hearts. Verse 6. Accordingly, we have urged Titus that as he had already made a beginning, he should also complete among you this gracious work. Now, you have to read the rest of chapters 8 and 9 to see what Paul had instructed Titus to do when he got there. I only want to make one point about this verse. Paul's belief in the sovereign grace of God to move into a human heart, change its values so that it joyfully gives, does not prevent him from using human agents of that grace. He writes a letter. He doesn't just pray. He sends Titus. He doesn't just write a letter. And Titus's job is to promote the cause. And therefore, it is very apostolic, not merely to pray in the privacy of our rooms that our people will be generous, but to write a letter and to make a personal appeal through an apostolic emissary. Verses 7 and 8. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in word, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this gracious work also. I say this not as a command. Very interesting. Not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Can you see from this why the, the church tax just wouldn't go for me? Paul went out of his way to avoid commanding the people to give. And the reason was that he wanted the giving to be a proof of their love. You remember he had said in 1 Corinthians 13... Though I give all my goods to feed the poor and have not love, it profits me nothing. It might be possible to tax or coerce a church into giving so that all the bills would be paid and it be of no value whatever. If our generosity 
and the faithfulness of our giving cannot be won through the overflow of joy manifesting itself in love, then even if all the bills are paid, it'll be of no value to God. And aren't the empty churches in Germany a tragic witness to that fact? All the money is there, but nobody else. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the reason I entitled the sermon Christmas Joy versus the Church Tax. Jesus Christ is God Almighty. He created the heavens and the earth. Through him all things are held in being. He existed before all time as the perfect and glorious and happy second person of the Trinity. And from that infinitely glorious height, for our sakes, he willed to become man, born in a cattle stall and crucified on a criminal's cross. Why? So that we might become rich, not rich in money. It's very plain in verse 2 that he means out of their poverty they became rich in joy and rich in liberality. And as verse 8 implies, rich in love. Now that's the grace of God, isn't it? That will turn a selfish person into a joyful giver. And here's the reason, and I think it will. Here's the reason verse 9 ought to take away selfishness from our hearts and replace it with joyful generosity. The reason it does is because it removes the basis of selfishness. The basis of selfishness is the notion that giving less away and keeping more for me will provide for me more happiness and more fulfillment. That's the ground of all selfishness, that conviction. But verse 9 shows that God's purpose in sending his beloved son into the world was to create joyful, loving, generous givers. Now, if God values joyful, loving generosity so much that he is willing to sacrifice his beloved son, then we can be absolutely assured that if we give more away and keep less for ourselves, we will be more happy and more fulfilled because God must, he must work mightily on behalf of those whose behavior he values so much as to give his beloved son to create it. It's a guarantee. He cannot go against it without denying his own commitment to the value of his son. Now, the mighty work of God on behalf of his generous people is the point and the discussion in verses 9, in verses 6 following of chapter 9. So in our walkthrough, let's take one big giant step over to verse 6 of chapter 9. The point is this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully 
will also reap bountifully. If God approves as highly as verse 9 of chapter 8 says he approves of generosity, so highly that he's willing to give his son to create a wealth of generosity in us, then we may be sure he will bless generosity. There are a thousand stories of wealthy people who have given far and away above the tenth of their income who have not been able, no matter how hard they tried, to outgive God. But verse 6 does not mean that if you give to God or if you give to the church, you will get rich. The Macedonians are the model and the Macedonians overflowed with a wealth of liberality out of their poverty. Verse 2 of chapter 8. Just what it does mean to reap bountifully is explained in verses 8 through 11. But before he gets to that, Paul says in verse 7, Each one of you must do as he has made up his own mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that was the end of the church tax for me, you see. That simply reiterates what verse 2 had said, that it must be given out of joy or it isn't acceptable to God. Christmas joy, not the church tax. Cheerfulness, not compulsion, are the only gifts that God is pleased with. The statement, God loves a cheerful giver, is an astonishing statement if you think God loves all people alike, isn't it? He doesn't, does he? This text would make no sense if he did. God loves all men in three senses. He gives life to all men and breath and food. Second, he reveals himself in nature to all men. And third, he sends his son to make an atonement for sin that can be offered to all men. But those who love God who are called according to his purpose, who give joyfully and generously out of that heart of joy. For them, God works all things together for their good and turns their blessing or their beneficence or their generosity back on their head in limitless blessing. Not that they might build bigger barns, but that they might do more good deeds. And that's what's explained in the next four verses. Verse 8 through 11. God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Not your barns. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity. Three times. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In these four verses, Paul explains in what sense 
if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. And I think it means this. They and we will reap bountifully because God will never allow us. He will make it an impossibility that we give so much that we cannot give more. Or to put it positively, the more you give, the more you will be enabled to give. That's what those verses mean. And it's stated three times very clearly. First in verse 8, so that you may always have an abundance to provide for every good work. Second, verse 10, God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. That is, he will enable you to put out more for the cause of righteousness. Third, verse 11, you will be enriched for the purpose of generosity. Don't ever distort these verses into thinking that they are a promise for luxury and wealth. The truth is plain and it's a promise here. Whether you have much or whether you have little, the promise remains. The more you give for the sake of others, the more you will be able to give. And I want to stress here, because I've heard this kind of preaching so much, and at this point it takes a very unbiblical twist, which I want to very explicitly avoid. God is not promising here that he will make generous Christians rich. He may or he may not. He is promising to make generous Christians capable of more generosity. There's a mentality that says this. As the income goes up, so should the material signs of greater income. And in the last 30 years, those material signs have included, among other things, a larger house, usually farther out in the suburbs, a larger car, usually one of the luxury lines, a yearly switch in wardrobe. I just was with a man a few weeks ago, no connection with this church, who told me he buys a new suit every fall just to stay current, an application for the gold card, an array of expensive entertainment and recreational items, and on and on. You know the list. The mentality says you can afford it, therefore buy it, because you should look like you can afford it. That mentality is exactly the opposite of the mentality in this text. This text implies this, and listen carefully, because some of you may not like this part, and you like what I just said. The young set may like what I just said. See if you like this. I think this text has nothing against an income that rises from 10000 to 50000 to $100,000 and beyond. God has no problem with big incomes. What he opposes is people who bottle up his beneficence in worldly investments and luxuries, unnecessary purchases. Why should our lifestyle increase with income? There is no biblical reason. If you can make it when you're 25 on this and your income skyrockets because you're an efficient worker, 
Why shouldn't you be able to give ten times more to the Lord instead of buying bigger and better things? It makes no sense to me. I can't find it in the scripture. If God increases our income, he is not putting his stamp of approval on a life of luxury. He's commissioning us with the exhilarating and joyful task of generosity. And there is nothing more exciting in all the world than giving more and more and more the more God blesses. And we've got smart people in this church and you're going to make lots of money. A lot of you young people, you're going to be making in 10 years more than you ever dreamed because you're wise and efficient. Boy, don't fall prey to that mentality that says as the income rises, so should the material signs. It is not biblical. It is wrong. The last phrase of verse 11, as well as verses 12 to 15 now, gives the grand outcome of God's overflow of mercy in his people, generosity. This will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. Under the test of this service, you will glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The great outcome of Christian generosity is the needs of the saints will be met. The needs of ministry will be met. Two, the gospel of Christ is acknowledged and affirmed openly. Third, many thanks arise out of the hearts of God's people to God. And fourth, he is glorified. God is glorified in the world. And now let's go back briefly and see if we can tie it all together. Everything begins at Christmas, right? God's inexpressible gift who left his wealth and became poor for our sakes. Then the good news, second step, is preached. The good news that Jesus has come to fulfill the joy of all those who trust in him. Third, as people pin their hopes on the promises of this gospel, their hearts are filled with joy, even amid poverty. And out of that joy in the all-satisfying love of God flows a love for God's people. And that love shows itself in an abundance of liberality. And to that liberality, God responds with a compounded capacity to be even more liberal. A spiritual and a material ability to be more liberal. And the ultimate outcome is that many thanksgivings arise to God and God is glorified. The glory of God, the great goal of all human history is displayed in the world. Is it any wonder then that the Macedonians begged, begged Paul, let us give. May we give more? Will you take it? What a mentality. But it makes sense in view of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, I'm thankful that at Bethlehem Baptist Church, we don't have a church tax. And there's no coercion except the word of God. Joy and love 
can run rampant. At the annual business meeting, the church treasurer said that we need $5,000 a Sunday to pay our missionary commitment to the Baptist General Conference, to local missions, to our own personal people who have gone out. And in addition, we may need as much as $4,000 a week to cover the home base expenses of the ministry here. That's a total, probably on the top side, of $36,000 in December. There is no more debt to pay on this church. The foundation has given us $8,000 to get rid of this 16, 17% mortgage. It's gone. Everything that comes in goes to missions and to supporting the base operation here. We've got 760 plus members in this church. I know that many of them are gone and, and that's an inflated number. Let's take 400. If 400 people gave $90 in December, that's it. Boom. We can do it. I believe we can do it. It would blow Vern's mind, I believe, if we paid $36,000 in this month. It would blow my mind. It wouldn't blow God's mind at all. There are many of us, and He is tremendously generous. Now, I promise to do my utmost for this church in December because I love you people. I love the ministry God has given to me in this place. I love missions and I love the future that I see on the horizon for this church. And I'd like you to join me to put out like you've never put out before in December for this church and surprise us all who have weak faith that that whole number of $36,000 can be met. Now, many of you have to give more than $90 for that to come true because I know that we don't have 400 people committed to giving that and not all of those 400 members are here to hear all this this morning. But we can pray for them and the grace of God can come down into hearts like it did in Macedonia and unleash a tidal wave of joy and generosity. And I close with this this word from 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. I do not say this as a command, but rather to prove the fullness of your joy and the genuineness of your love. Would the ushers please prepare to come forward? We're going to collect the offering at the end as a symbolic way of saying this today by our order of worship. Giving is not our initiative to which God should respond. Giving is a response to the Christmas joy which God pours out into our lives. And I know that this offering is not going to meet the $36,000 need. It's a symbol. It's those next three Sundays after you've had some time to pray and think. And I hope we will all, myself included, be like the Macedonians who gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. For the grace of God is rich.